One of the things that always makes and elevates the value of a good photograph is access. You know, it's that combination of doing the photography itself, composing a photo, looking for light, like it's that stuff, but it's also the being able to experience something else, something new. Part of the reason why certain historical photos, you know, they have that value is because, like, the photographer had some type of access to the subject matter that no one else had. Welcome to Binder. I'm Ray McManus. Whether you're writing a poem, taking photographs, painting, working on a car, running a small business, being a bank teller. I mean, work is work, right? And it requires a certain level in, in which you are invested in what you're doing. It is a representation of yourself. If one is serious about what one does, you can't ignore the work it takes to do it. Unfortunately, America doesn't necessarily always value the work of artists, painters, sculptors, might not be recognized until they're dead. Poets might not be recognized for their contribution until they are dead. Even nonfiction writers or, or those who write memoir may not be as recognized as those who write perhaps more popular forms of entertainment. And unfortunately, that's usually where the money is. As artists, when we find opportunities where those two worlds can meet, where we can put the work in that we put into the art that we create to a point where someone recognizes that and wants to pay us for it, that is wonderful <laughs> because you're not having to share your time really for both fields. I have to be a professor and a poet. That is not the case for some friends of mine who are poets and are doing quite well. They've won big awards or they publish with a, a rather large publishing firm, but they still have other jobs that they have to work for steady income. I mean, so with work, there is really no way to avoid it. But even if I don't get paid for it, it's not going to take away the joy of what I'm doing because I like the work. And I think most artists who give themselves to their art also like the work. When I was regularly freelancing at the state when I was in my, I guess, early 20s or mid-20s, I remember shooting a high school championship state game, and I came back, and my best celebration photo was a photo of one of the players who was essentially celebrating for the camera. And my editor was like, do you have any ones where they're not celebrating for you? And I was like... Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. And so I went back and I remember that moment being like, oh yeah, like you don't want the guy that's playing it up for the camera because he's changing his behavior because of you. I'm Sean Rayford and I'm a photojournalist that's been living in Columbia since 1997. Why photography? Why photojournalism? I, I would probably say high school, working at the newspaper, the ability to participate in an artistic experience while having a lot more freedom to move around than if I wasn't in that position. That's carried over in every step whenever I do photojournalism or documentary work. 
The ability to experience history taking place firsthand and having the power to choose where you look at it from. Sometimes it's not a historic thing happening, but in the long run that ends up being part of my role in recording a draft for historians to look back on. So it doesn't have to be like a historic event for it to have that type of historic significance. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think such a fascinating part of photography is the storytelling. This exhibit, I think, is so important. These things that you have captured from these protests that we witnessed from the safety of our living rooms, usually within the 24-hour news cycle, you know, and always wanted to pick up the sensational parts of it. When, you know, you're there, it is a job. I mean, you are working. You're not, it's not a hobby. Can you talk some about the process? The, the goal is for the one picture to tell the story. Mm -hmm. So how do you get to that? First off, I, it's important that you have some understanding of whatever is going on. You know, it's like if you're shooting a baseball game and don't know anything about baseball, it's going to be tough to, <laughs> you know, to, to go into that. So if you've got information, good information about what's going on, that helps. That helps a lot, and that can give you kind of targets and things to be aware of and to look for. Like in an instance of a protest movement, where do conflicts happen, and and how do they happen? Uh, sometimes. You know, I can show up someplace and I can be like, okay, like that one dude, yeah, his, his going to be a problem. I could compare it to I used to, when I used to bartend. You know, you can kind of pick out like, you know, someone comes in the front door and you're like, damn it, like that guy is going to, you know, I can just tell, I know it. Or, you know, the first interaction that you have with him at the bar and you, you can, you know, you, you use that sense of like being aware of when things can get tense. And that, that doesn't happen often. I've shot so many and where, you know, they're not exciting things in which there's conflict. And when I say conflict, I don't even mean like physical conflict. Right. I, I just mean like tension, you know, where, where you might be able to capture two people in a frame. Then from there, if you've got good information, the next part of after the information thing is to get people comfortable with me around. And so I try not to photograph a lot in the beginning, kind of just to walk around. The goal is to melt in, let the things happen around you, and hopefully the people, they're not performing for you, mm. and they're not holding back. Those are the two things that you want to avoid. And so, if you can get the people that you're around to forget that you're there, then that allows you to get that access. Tell me about your, tell me about your marches that, yeah. that, that have been so, going down Main Street. Yeah, yeah, like so. they, they seem to be like... Uh, but like he was saying, you know, like very peaceful. You've been stopping at the intersections yeah. and, and, and making sure not to tell me yeah. about that. Yeah, uh, and the energy that you yeah, it, energy's everything. You know what I'm saying? So that's the reason why we are still saying that. It's because somebody's energy ran out. Somebody's energy ran out. We didn't keep going. We didn't keep coming out every day. We didn't keep coming out for weeks. We didn't keep coming out for months until they changed stuff. When people come in and see this exhibit, I think that, you know, one of the things that, that I've been telling folks is that, you know, prepare to be moved. But if there were, if there was one thing that, you know, you would hope that 
patrons would think about or maybe feel by seeing this exhibit and most specifically your work in this exhibit? What would that be? It would be great if it somehow gave them somewhat of a better understanding for each individual that's going to be different because some people who view this, I know are going to be people who were participants who were there and who lived it. So for them, you know, my goal would be completely different than for someone who wasn't there physically. But for someone who wasn't there, I would hope that they have some type of better understanding or maybe it piques an interest for them to look into something more that they didn't feel they understood well enough, which for me is typically everything. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is, I guess, a, a path in life where I'm constantly put in front of people who have a better understanding of a subject than I do. I guess I get to interact with a lot of people who are good at what they do mm-hmm. and that can teach me something. And if I can kind of push that along, that's great. I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's a good question that I haven't, outside of you telling me a little bit earlier, <laughs> I haven't really thought about. Well, I think, those are bri- I think those are brilliant answers, honestly, Sean, because I think too often people think that because you've done this work, that there's an agenda you have, right? When it's like, you're just trying to do a job. You're trying to do what you think is the best work you can do. And hopefully you get get paid for that. Um, (laughs) But, you know, what I hear from you is is really is like, you know, look, I've done the work. I, I hope that it appeals to everyone who comes in for whatever their reasons may be. I think, too, if the people who didn't fully kind of understand what was going on, and there's a lot of folks who didn't understand mm-hmm. what was going on, that they also see that there's humility behind the work. You know, my job wasn't to understand everything that was going on, but to capture as much as you could mm-hmm. in the way you could. And Sean, I got to tell you, man, you, you, you capture it beautifully. I can honestly hang out and listen to you talk about <laughs> your work all day long because as a poet who who also doesn't have a lot of answers, um, they think when I get asked a lot about my own work, like, you know, what were you trying to do here? What were you, and it sometimes kind of, it unnerves me a little bit, you know, because it's like, I wasn't trying to do anything but write a good f- poem. That's all I was trying to do, you know? <laughs> I'm always just thankful that I don't meet a whole lot of resistance. You know, like, yeah. Throw the headphones at me, man. Instead, you know, just... Just that kind of honesty is, I think, I think it's so important for our listeners to be able to hear that and, mm-hmm. and to know that, yeah, man, we're all human. To, to, to tie it in with, you know, even, you know, the, the name of the Hindsight 2020, I ran into uh, a colleague in Charleston. It was an anti-mask protest, like during the pandemic. And um, for, for my colleague, I think they were somewhat deflated in experiencing the pushback and the population that is just going to be like fake news and you know I said you know it's not so much about like what these folks now that are around us get from what we're producing it's you know what people 20 25 30 50 60 75 100 200 400 you know however many years later whether it's aliens you know, you know, that, that, that can learn something from us, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or at least see what life is like. You know, that, that's, that's the real value. And because it was a year like none other that I've experienced, I felt like I had, you know, this much larger role 
especially early on in the pandemic when like people weren't supposed to be moving around and I was carrying around document that I printed out from Department of Homeland Security that basically said that I could move about because members of the media were basically a check on critical infrastructure. And so like, you know, that elevated, you know, what I thought was my role, like people literally can't go out. They're not supposed to be going out like stuff's still happening, right. like maybe not much, but like even stuff not happening is something. Yeah. And and that's important. And I would literally just go out and drive around because I knew other people weren't supposed to be doing it. And that was sort of like my role. Like, I, I didn't know what the hospitals were like, you know, especially like in the beginning. Yeah. And, and I don't think nobody else really did either. And so I would just regularly drive by the hospitals because I had no idea, you know, unless I saw it on the news. And guess what? That's me. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> you got you to just drive by and look. And so I was doing a lot of that. I would take a drive every day. Um, and it wouldn't necessarily be long, but I'd, you know, go, go around. And then I remember on one Sunday, I made photos because it was so empty. The city looked different. 2020 was a year where that, like, got hammered into me of, like, your value and what you do isn't necessarily just for the people that are living right now. Sean's work is part of Hindsight 2020, on view through October 24th. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and many other outlets, and you can see more at his website, seanrayford.com. Up next, we as humans most relate to a story. And in the case of a work of art, whether it's sculpture, painting, or a photograph, it is important for me to tell the story. Al Black, after this. Hey y'all, you know who it is. Just thought you might like to know there's more coming soon. You know, more? What? You keep acting like you don't know what I mean. Come on. I'm talking about more exhibitions, more classes, more programs, more concerts, more tours, more art, more podcasts. There's always more at the CMA. See? More. And members get even more than that. More mission, more parties, more benefits than I can name in this ad. In fact, it might be easier if you just go see for yourself. Because if I have to list how much more there is, we'll be here all day. You can see more for yourself on our website, www.columbiamuseum.org. And now, for more of the show. This poem is written to a photo by Sean Rayford. It's titled, How Black Lives Pose matters. At a cut in a curb for the handicapped to pass, a crosswalk ends. Weeds unplanted root in a crack where concrete walkway meets back wall. In the foreground, a safety barrier lies disassembled near a light pole. Amidst urban disarray, a button to stop traffic beckons. 
Photo composition matters. Everyone mask. Are they smiling? Bare shoulders, dressed in red. One black woman with five black men. Her hands rest on a man with a hat. A tired cliché suspended above his head. God bless America. Flag painted on the wall does not wave. Stars and stripes hang limp in shadows. Four matching face masks, two suit coats, in opposition to three in Gamecock Garnett. A couple of men crouch at her feet. Bowtie man in blue leans away to the right. Blonde dreaded man stands one white shoe with checked socks on the base of a light pole, pastel pink suit jacket and jeans. He leans ever so slightly in from the left. Where did they come from? Where do they go? A publicity photo, all dressed to kill. I'm Al Black. And most folks know me as a poet. I hosted Mind Gravy for 10 years every Wednesday until COVID shut us down. That's 500 shows. It's always a treat to be able to be in the same room with you. Love your energy that you bring and your genuine passion for the community. A mutual dear friend, Tim Conroy, you know, we, we like to think of you as a and we say this very lovingly and very affectionately that you are a wonderful carpetbagger and we appreciate your time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never forgot that we won the war and we own the South. <laughs> I don't know about the last part, but um, <laughs> I'll give you the first part and thank you for your service. <laughs> but, you know, you have been a beacon really in the community, in the poetry scene, as you said. Really a little over 10 years, you know, there's not too many people around Columbia that write poetry that would not be familiar with the name of Al Black. So much of that really comes from a reputation of creating an opportunity for poets to be able to come in and share their work, uh, whether they're open mics or whether they're more curated with Mind Gravy or a little bit of both. So, you know, the work that you're doing in the community made perfect sense to get you involved in a project like this. What were some things in the images from, from Sean's work reached out to your, your sense of community that made you want to, to, to sort of write poems? His work, as well as the other photographers, they focused on humanity. And in the end, that's the most important thing. The photo that I wrote to, I found most interesting because they were masked. And you didn't get to see their smiles or lack of smiles. That was, for me, an interesting way to try to write to something where you didn't have that opportunity to maybe see a little more of how they're feeling. And obviously, this photo, as opposed to some of the other ones, was a posed photo. Uh, many of the other photos were action photos or taken as the event was happening. Yeah, that's an interesting image, too. You're right, because they, they are all masked. And so 
there really isn't a focal point to kind of give you an indication of what their posture might be at that moment, whether they're smiling for a camera, whether they're angry. Instead, you end up focusing on the fact that they are human beings that are standing there. And, and it is really an interesting image in comparison to a lot of the other images that you see throughout the series, because there is a lot of moments where the, the tension is palpable and the pain is real. You can see it in the expressions. You can almost feel the sense of terror in some by looking at their eyes, but primarily their facial expressions. And in this particular image, that part's kind of taken away. That and since they were posing, it is not an action photo. A work of art that has movement in it provides you with opportunities to use verbs. And verbs are gold when you're writing. Mm -hmm. So, in many ways, I tried to do the background with movement, like the crosswalk ending, you know, at the wall, the, the flag hanging limp because it was painted, you know, things like that. So, I had to provide the action. And I tried to provide the action in the background and not so much in the people. And I hope it worked, but it was an interesting exercise. I had first wanted to write to the easy ones, the ones that provided me verbs. And then I thought, no, this one's a challenge. And it had a lot to say because since it was posed, you have to assume almost everything in the photo was there for a reason. Right. It wasn't happenstance that God bless America hung over this man's head and that a flag was painted on the wall in the background. It pushed my limits, I think. We, we've been kind of tossing the phrase around a lot, I think, in, in perhaps some of our interviews. And I think it'd probably be a good time for us to kind of take a moment and explain to our listeners what Ekphrasis poetry is. Of course, it goes by many pronunciations, um, depending yeah. on uh, which side of the river you're on. Um, but, I'm north of the Ohio. <laughs> right. So let's talk a little bit about what your definition of it is. And then what are strategies that you use when, when you're sort of writing about art? For me, an aphraxic poem is you're looking at a piece of art. Your beginning point is the prompt. What does this piece of art do for you as you see it? especially in paintings. Photographs are more difficult to write to in my book because they're completely full. Often in a painting, there's empty spaces, and it is in the empty spaces between words or in paintings where you co-create with the original creator. In a photograph, everything in there has a representation on it, and you don't have that empty space to fill. When I write an ekphrastic poem, I start out just writing everything I see, trying to get it all out. I see this, I see this, and then I begin to try to construct and deconstruct and then construct again a, something that's coherent, that has a story to tell. Uh, this moment, whether real or imagined, has a foreword and, a, and an epilogue, and I'm going to start here and then create the poem from that spot. Right. You know, that's how I approach it. Right. It's finding the story, mm -hmm. you know, um, which I think is pretty much all we're doing with literary arts programming here at the Columbia Museum of Art, right, is, is to be able to look at artwork and find the stories in the art 
tell those stories, have people listen to those stories, connect to those stories, and then thus connect to the art. And then the cool thing about it is that we can come back to the same piece of art, the same photograph, the same sculpture, the same painting, and find a whole other story in it, right? Each time we go to, depending on what we're thinking that, at that particular moment or what we went through that particular day or what has passed since the last time we saw it versus how we're seeing it now. And I think with this project, even more so, right? Because what we're seeing are still images of, of action. And I like how you phrase about the fact that, you know, you're trying to look at an image that was still so you can focus on nouns, right? And, and because with action, you, you are focused on verbs. If you see the image of a person running, even though literally they're not running because it's a two-dimensional image, right? It's on a frame. But every time you look at that person, that person is running, right? They never stop running, you know, at any point. And so, yeah, for the creative process for poets, that's kind of tough, right? Even though you've been writing, how long have you been writing? How long have I been sharing or writing? I've been writing since I was eight or nine, you know, and reading voraciously. But I never shared until about a month and a half into doing Mind Gravy. I had notebooks and and I just write. I've been writing all my life. My wife was a published poet and was part of a group at Purdue where she would do readings. When she was there, the first time I shared a poem, it was like, you've been writing poetry and I was doing readings and publishing and you didn't tell me you wrote, you know, we'll be married 50 years in March. And, it was, you know, for her, it was like, Almost I was unfaithful because I didn't share. I wrote poetry. <laughs> I said, well, I didn't want to share. And she goes, well, if I knew you wrote, I would have told. I said, that's, that's why I didn't share. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so basically what you're saying, in order for two poets to stay married for 50 years, one can't tell the other that they're poets. Because <laughs> so, two poets live in the same house, man, it ain't going to last 50 years. That's just not going to happen. Well, it was her thing. You know, I was a businessman and, and I coached for years. When I moved down here, I told myself, I'm going to see if I can live without coaching because coaching's all consuming. And I'd always gone to events and I looked around and I didn't see an event I like. Either they were all academic or they were black events or white events or come to Jesus poetry events, but nothing brought it all together. And so when I started Mind Gravy, I would always try to pair, like if I had a guy from the mountains of South Carolina doing Americana, I might do a hip hop poet. And it was surprising to see the sharing and the appreciation that happened that they may not have ever crossed paths except for in a purposeful bringing together of opposites. And I think it's important. We must step outside our comfort zone mm. if we are going to become the potential America promises it has. But you don't do it staying in your own group. Al's got a couple of books available. I Only Left for Tea and Man with Two Shadows, both published by Muddy Ford Press. Check them out if you want to see some more. History is a slippery fish. Too often we forget the history that we have read, that we have learned, 
has always been written by the ones who win the wars, the dominant spectrum. When you think about American history, it's it has always been told through the history of white European settlers. And it's always been that one perspective. Not until recently do we begin to really appreciate learning more about, you know, what was sort of at least captured in, in oral histories or personal histories, whether it was in journals or letter writing, that we learn about the history of women in this country. We learn about the history of, of Native Americans on this continent. We learn about, you know, the history of African Americans and through their words, not somebody else, you know, not another white guy writing about Native Americans and African Americans and women. And so, what has happened is that history now becomes a multifaceted, multi-layered approach. There's no such thing as a singular history. What we have to remember, too, though, is with the photographer who is capturing a moment where history is in the making and everything around us really is history in the making, that when we capture that moment and we write about it, we're telling that history from our perspective. That's not going to be the history of the person who was standing next to us because they're seeing something that we're not seeing. They have an experience that we don't have that they're bringing to it. If we take that into consideration, rather than us trying to find one history that we can all agree on, maybe we need to start agreeing on the fact that there are always going to be multiple histories and how much more we can learn about something rather than trying to plot it on a timeline rather than trying to see this straightforward trajectory to see that there are all these simultaneous things that are happening all at once. There is no singular history. And if we capture it in a film, if we capture it on an image, if we capture it in a poem, or if we capture it in a story, or even if we write it out in an essay, we are only capturing and defining one aspect of a history. You've been listening to Binder, a production of Columbia Museum of Art. Today's episode was hosted by me, Ray McManus, produced and edited by Drew Barron, with special assistance from Joel Ryan Cook. For more information about Binder, CMA exhibitions, and programs, please visit our website at www.columbiamuseum.org.